Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with Karen Kadrowski, professor of political science, also director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. Karen, welcome back to our program. Hi there. Thanks for the invitation. Wayne Moyer is with us well, uh, as well, professor of uh, political science and the chair of policy studies at Grinnell College. Wayne, welcome to you. Hi, Ben. Good to see you. Good to be with you and with our listeners. You can join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100. A little bit later in the hour, uh, I want to talk with Karen and Wayne about the, the accumulation of baggage that uh, the newly declared candidate for 2024 and former President Donald Trump has been collecting over the last month since he announced his 2024 White House run. Also, some Supreme Court cases heard this week. And uh, uh, Karen and Wayne's thoughts about the DNC planning the 2024 nominating process without without Iowa leading off in the uh, Democrats' column and uh, some foreign policy we hope to get to as well. But first of all, let's, of course, talk about uh, the Georgia runoff results. Um, Senator Raphael Warnock defeating his Republican challenger. Um, he won a, a full six-year Senate term representing Georgia in last night's election, yesterday's, previously winning the seat in January of 2020. That was a special election show, so he's uh, had to be uh, campaigning quite a bit over the last couple of years. He holds many firsts by being reelected, the first black Democratic U.S. senator elected in uh, the southern United States, first black Democrat elected to the Senate by a former state of the Confederacy. And during his victory speech last night, he commended voters' participation in both the November and runoff elections. You endured the rain, you endured the long lines, and you voted, and you did it because you believe, as I do, that democracy is the political enactment of a spiritual idea. This notion that each of us has within us a spark of the divine, that we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And if you're not given to that kind of religious language, that's fine. Our tent is big. Okay. Warnock's win gives the Democrats an outright majority in the Senate, which will now be split 51-49. He inched out a 2% margin ahead of the GOP's nominee, Herschel Walker, after only running ahead by 1% in the November uh, election. Walker uh, might have expanded his margins in deep red rural counties last night, especially in North Georgia, but those votes not enough to overcome Warnock's edge in the state's more populous areas. Warnock, or rather Walker, thanked his supporters in a subdued concession speech last night. But one of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I've felt those prayers. Karen Kodrowski, after two years of 50-50 with the Democrats and the GOP in the U.S. Senate, now 51-49, what are the implications 
for the Democrats with that one extra seat? Yeah, well, it's bigger than what you might think, right? So there will not have to be any sort of power-sharing arrangement. The Democrats will hold majorities on all of the committees. Um, What this will mean is that they can, will be able to move more legislation through, and especially confirmation of Biden's judicial nominees. And it also frees up Vice President Harris. She was really kind of tethered to Washington, D.C., and cast just, you know, scores of tiebreaker votes. Votes, uh, because most of the legislation that came forward was, you know, pretty much party line votes. And so now she'll be at liberty to do some of the other things that vice presidents typically do. Goodwill, you know, trips, um, participating in uh, diplomatic missions, um, attending state funerals and being able to get out amongst the, co- the country and to be able to speak on behalf of the administration and raise her own profile. Right. And we we can bet that we won't hear the names Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin as much as we have in the past yeah, two years, I, right? I think so as well. <laughs> but but remember, both of them pull you know, peel off. That's problem for the Democrats. So, you know, while Cinema and Mansion may not be quite the center of attention that they were for the last two years. They 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 will still be in a, a reasonably strong bargaining position mm-hmm. uh, because one of them will have to stay in the fold for the Democrats to be able yeah. to move their agenda forward. Wayne Moyer, what do you want to add to that analysis? Well, I think a couple of things. One, we now have, I think, strong evidence that Georgia will be competitive in future presidential elections. And that's an enormous change. The other thing is this is a terrible blow to Donald Trump. Walker only became the nominee after Trump's endorsement. And he won a, he won a primary um, because of Trump's endorsement. So it's another factor, I think, that uh, a negative factor in terms of uh, Trump's continued credibility within the Republican Party. Right. And and just the full picture here of the 2022 midterms, now that we have the last puzzle piece put into place, the Democrats gained a net of one Senate seat, but also two governor's mansions. Uh, it's the first time since 1934 that the president's party has managed to gain both Senate and governor's seats in a midterm. Now, Republicans did gain the net of nine House seats. They have, uh, of course, control of the U.S. House in the coming Congress. Um, But we have to remember, don't we, uh, Wayne, that on average the opposition party gains a couple dozen seats. Um, Yeah, 20 or 30. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. So, so, Wayne, what does this tell you about when we have the full picture about how this midterm will be remembered for for those numbers, but also what you remembered, uh, what you you brought out here is that Trump-backed candidates uh, lost more than they won. Uh, that's right. And they lost critical races in swing states. Uh, and I think that's terribly important for the future. Mm-hmm. When we have the, the, the big picture view for you, the takeaways for you, Karen, on this midterm before we move on? Uh, well, I, I certainly agree that the, it was a disappointing outcome for the Republican Party. And um, I think especially disappointing for those that thought that they could ride Trump's reputation and endorsement into office. So I hope that the Republican Party, you know, starts to take a real look at itself and figures out how it, it can remain competitive, right? Um, they have undeniable strengths among non-college educated white vote, voters and rural voters. 
but it, especially what we saw in the um, in the Georgia runoff is that even college-educated Republican voters are turning against the party when they're running a particularly flawed candidate. So we, you know, they they and they are by doubling down on um, you know working class white voters, the Republican Party is playing a losing game demographically, and at some point they need to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. We want to focus a little bit in our next segment more on on um, Donald Trump, um, uh, but first uh, the Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy aspirations for Speaker of the House, um, but now the Representative from Arizona Republican mounting another challenge to Representative. McCarthy for speaker. Um, uh, Karen, what do you think, uh, how serious is um, this challenge to McCarthy? We we have about a minute before we go to break. Um, Do you think it's just a sideline issue, or do you think McCarthy um, has to really work to become the speaker? Yeah, he has to really work to become speaker in order to be able to hold the Freedom Caucus in line so that he can get 218 votes on the floor. Um, And there are now about seven uh, House members, Republican House members, who have said that they are not going to vote for McCarthy. Uh, And if he loses any more, he's going to be in some serious trouble. And it's a sign of potential weakness. Um, And it's also a sign that, you know, there's just deep divisions within the Republican Party and uh, that that could compromise their ability to move legislation forward. Okay, we're going to take a short break and be back with our guests on this Politics Wednesday. Karen Kadrowski of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. And when we come back, we want to talk about what made news on the weekend. Um, that that um, the, the quote from uh, Donald Trump on social media, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, caused an uproar among some, um, silence from others. We'll talk about it when we get back. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at CorridorVein and CorridorAesthetics.com. We're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College and Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University, our two scholars of uh, political science, giving us analysis on the latest uh, um, on the political landscape. This is what we love to do on our Politics Wednesday edition. Let's march on here to um, some news that came over the weekend that caused quite a ripple. Um, Of course, it was about a month ago that uh, former President Trump announced his third run for the presidency in 2024. Um, On Saturday, he reiterated false claims that the 2020 elections that he lost to President Biden were rigged, but also in social media um, said that uh, this massive fraud, again, unfounded, he said, allows for the termination of all kinds of rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Um, Now, those remarks came in reaction to revelations on internal communications about how social media uh, Twitter had restricted the circulation of the New York Post. 
uh, report there during the 2020 election campaign about uh, Hunter Biden, uh, President Biden's son. The Bidens have denied any wrongdoing. Now, uh, the former president tried to walk back his remarks with another social troop post post on Monday. Uh, I, I want to hear some interview, uh, play an excerpt of an interview on ABC News in a moment. But Wayne, how remarkable is this that a former president would cast aside the Constitution in this way? I cannot think of another instance where any other president has cast aside the Constitution, uh, considering how basic the Constitution is to all of our understanding of the country. And even the Republicans are going to read the Constitution at the beginning of the session of Congress. I think that's being done in the House of Representatives. So this is extraordinary. And and uh, and I, I think will have a significant effect in increasing the unraveling of Trump. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to a little bit of an interview on ABC's This Week. This was Sunday morning, Representative David Joyce of Ohio. Importantly, he's also chair of the Republican Governance Group. Uh, He illustrated, listen to this exchange, how some Republicans are very hesitant even now to criticize former President Trump. Uh, He's dodging repeatedly questions from anchor George Stephanopoulos on whether he'd support Trump after he suggested this termination of the Constitution. Uh, Let's listen. Can you support a candidate in 2024 who's for suspending the Constitution? Well, again, it, it's early. I think there's going to be a lot of people in the primary. I think at the end of the day, uh, you will say uh, whoever the Republicans end up pick, I'll fall in behind because that's... Even if it's Donald Trump and he's called for suspending the Constitution? Well, again, I think it's going to be a big field. I don't think Donald Trump's going to clear out the field like he did in the 60s. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you, if he's the nominee, will you support him? Uh, I will support whoever the Republican nominee is. And I just don't think that at this point he'll be able to get there because I think there's a lot of other good quality candidates out there. That's a remarkable statement. You'd support a candidate who's come out for suspending the Constitution? Well, you know, he says a lot of things. Uh, You have to take them in context. And right now, uh, I have to worry about making sure as a Republican governance group and a Republican majority that we make things work for American people. And I can't be uh, really chasing every one of these crazy statements that come out about from any of these candidates at the moment. but that's an extraordinary statement. You can't come out against someone who's for suspending the Constitution? Well, first off, he has no ability to suspend the Constitution. Secondly, But he I says he's for it. Well, you know, he says a lot of things, that, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's ever going to happen. So you've got to accept uh, exact fact from fantasy, and fantasy is that the, we're going to suspend the Constitution and go backwards. We're moving forward, and we're going to continue to move forward as a Republican majority and as a, a Republican conference. David Joyce of Ohio, representative chair of the Republican Governance uh, Group there on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Now, to be fair, some Republicans certainly condemning the remarks made by Trump on Saturday uh, that he made on the Truth Social uh, platform, but many remaining silent um, or did not condemn him by name. Karen, comment on that exchange and what what you've gathered in the, 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 the GOP reaction to this. Well, I, I think that that's just an a, a really vivid illustration of the the kind of dilemma that a lot of Republicans are are facing, which is that they know that Trump commands um, loyalty from a significant part of the base. 
And um, for a lot of members of the House or state legislatures, what they really fear is not a general election battle, but that one in the primary um, where, you know, someone that Trump endorses stands a very good chance of being elected. And that's how, for example, George ended up with Herschel Walker. Uh, and, And so condemning Trump carries a significant amount of political risk. On the other hand, it's like, at what point do you draw a line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it would seem to me that this is this is hardly a profile in courage, shall we say? And and if the Constitution is not sacred, if you know treasonous language is not sufficient, um, then what is? You yeah. know, is there any line that the former president could cross that would be just uh, a step too far? Right. And and this is just a continuing sort of waterfall of controversy that um, the former president uh, <laughs> bathes in, <laughs> showers in, if I'm talking about a waterfall metaphor, I guess. The, we had the controversy just last week of, of uh, the former president hosting the rapper Ye, formerly Kanye West, uh, with his uh, espoused anti-Semitic uh, views, uh, joined at dinner with uh, at Mar-a-Lago by Nick Fuentes, a known white nationalist, Holocaust denier. Then we had this week the Trump family business convicted of tax fraud that just yesterday, um, looking at a um, economist YouGov poll released last week, uh, Trump at 36 percent, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, at 30 percent in a potential uh, GOP primary field. Uh, Wayne, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, but um, uh, with these kind of headlines, this kind of controversy he continues to attract, uh, that can only help Ron DeSantis and others. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, it's drip, drip, drip in terms of Trump. And I think now um, a Republican leadership pretty much around the country realizes that there, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to win a general election with Trump. And that's going to have to have some kind of effects in the way that they think about Trump, regardless of the size of his base. Mm-hmm. Wayne Moyer with us uh, from Grinnell College, Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University. Uh, let's uh, have you comment a little bit about a couple of cases being heard before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this uh, week. Um, incidentally, a program note tomorrow will go into detail about some of the most high-profile fro- cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, but also uh, before the Iowa State Supreme Court. I'll have legal scholars Todd Pettis and Emily Hughes of the University of Iowa College of Law on this program tomorrow. Uh, but but let's get a political angle on a couple of them that we heard in our news this week. Uh, one case over gay rights and free speech. This is the case where we have a Christian website designer suing Colorado, arguing that a state law banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation violates her right to free speech. The court's decision, uh, heard this week but expected next year, the decision could end up redrawing the line between religious beliefs and these protections against discrimination for LGBTQ people. Karen, your thoughts on this case? Well, I, I think one of the most remarkable things about this case is that it's a, it's a hypothetical case, right? Mm-hmm. The the plaintiff who is who is challenging the Colorado law wants to set up a business where she creates websites for engaged couples 
for their weddings, which is a quite common practice now. And she wants to be able to discriminate against same-sex couples. Uh, but she has not actually started this business yet. Um, and um, and she's arguing that it, it it's both a free speech issue and a, a freedom of religion issue. And uh, I, I think it I think it will be interesting to see how the Supreme Court decides on this. Um, this uh, the the conservatives on the court have been very very friendly to um, to religious interests and seeing that the free exercise of religion does does allow for some people to refrain from you know baking cakes or whatever it is um you know if it if the the couple um is if it if the action is contrary to their to their religious beliefs um the court yesterday which heard arguments that went on for some time um ended up engaging in some hypotheticals um including about black santa clauses and whether or not they would um, talk to children who showed up in Ku Klux Klan costumes. I mean, it was that was actually that was actually voiced. That was actually voiced. That that yes, example. That wow. Was. Okay. Uh, that was actually voiced, and and of course, you know, hypotheticals are helpful as a as a means for j- judges to be able to think about potential implications of their case. But that was such an absurd example um, that I I think what it ended up doing was just s- sort of you know ma- making the court an object of ridicule. Mm-hmm. Wayne, your thoughts on this case? Well, I think the, the overall the broader question is. Uh, freedom of religion conflicts with other rights in, in a number of specific ways, in a number of specific cases. And this Supreme Court seems to be freedom of religion precedence over other rights. And how far are they willing to go in giving freedom of religion over uh, precedence over freedom of speech or other kinds of freedom, freedom to discriminate, whatever, and they're they're moving in that direction. How far will they go? I think is the question. Mm-hmm. Let's move to another case uh, heard this week. More v. Harper. This is a dispute that could really. Um, well, 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 we'll see if it, it could f- affect us here in Iowa. But between voting rights advocates in North Carolina's General Assembly, uh, General Assembly controlled by Republicans in that state, um, could dramatically increase the power that state legislatures have over voting issues. Now, this case stems from a fight in North Carolina over their redistricting maps. And remember, here Iowa is a is an outlier in how we redistrict here with uh, a nonpartisan system, more or less. The North Carolina state Supreme Court threw out new political maps, which were drawn by the GOP-controlled legislature in North Carolina on the grounds that they were an illegal partisan gerrymander, and a court-drawn map ultimately replaced the one that the lawmakers had. Uh, Wayne, thoughts on the significance of this case? Because uh, we we do have a lot of legislative power in our 50 states for how um, elections, well, the districts, but also uh, rules that accompany elections. Those are in the hands of the states. Right. This is huge because essentially the issue here is whether state courts can override the legislature in terms of redistricting. And state courts have been doing that. Uh, but if, if, if this precedent is set, and if the court upholds the people who want to give the state legislators 
of the complete right to do redistrib- redistributing uh, without appeal to state courts. They'd still be able to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. That would be an enormous change uh, in terms of providing, uh, of essentially eliminating check on powers of legislatures. Mm-hmm. 30 seconds before you, for you before we go to break. Karen, can you fit something in that? Yeah, and I agree with everything that Wayne said, and it would also um, imply that state legislatures could overturn the results of a popular election or um, install new electors if they don't like the outcome of the popular vote. I mean, the, the potential ramifications of this case are enormous. Okay, Karen Kadrowski with us of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, our two political scholars, uh, giving us their valuable analysis of what's on our political landscape. We'll be back with more, and we'll talk about the, the Democrats' plan for a presidential campaign season without Iowa at the top of the calendar when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. So fortunate to have the listeners that we do supporting Iowa Public Radio. Also very fortunate to have our political analysts, um, also those today. Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College in this uh, last segment. We want to talk about the plan um, that Biden put forward last week uh, for a presidential campaign season without Iowa at the top of the Democrats' calendar in that leadoff position. A little later, uh, I want to do uh, uh, lean on Wayne Moyer's foreign policy expertise to talk about um, the latest in Ukraine and also that uh, relaxation of the COVID policy in China. Let's let's start, if we could, uh, Karen, primarily with you to talk about this plan. Last Friday, the rulemaking arm of the Democratic National Committee voting to approve a plan that would make South Carolina the first state to hold a primary, uh, followed by other early voting states, Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Michigan. And now this proposal needs to be approved at a full DNC meeting. States will need to uh, set their own primary dates. This is a real shakeup, though, uh, Karen. It would strip Iowa of the first-in-the-nation status, status it has held since the early 1970s. Uh, give us your thoughts, Karen. Well, if uh, it, I guess two words. Uh, one is bad for Iowa, and the second point is unenforceable. Uh, so the the DNC has said that you know for example if you know a state jumps its place in the in the line that it's um, you know half of its delegates won't be seated that there would be sanctions against candidates that um, you know file um, to be on a ballot early well an Iowa Democratic Caucus doesn't have ballots. Right. You know, it's literally people voting with their feet. Um, And then secondly, that um, that Iowa has very few delegates. So this is not going to be a huge dilution of Iowa's voting power at the convention, um, but also that the convention is is 
a foregone conclusion and has been since the 1950s. So losing votes at the convention is not nearly as significant to Iowans as losing their influence on, um, you know, weighing in early on who ought to be president of the United States. Now, having said that, I think it's worth noting that the United States has never sat down and said, gee, how do we elect, how should we choose the most powerful person on the planet? Mm -hmm. The one that could destroy the entire planet on a whim and come up with a process that we think will lead to the best possible person. That That's not anything, any conversation that the United States has had. And that the caucus, you know, um, ended up first in the nation sort of by accident. And all of the other, um, you know, places in the line have been done, um, you know, in sort of an ad hoc manner. And usually to try and ensure that your party um, you know, has a victory or that states mm-hmm. have, you know, some sort of influence on the final, uh, on the final outcome, uh, but never with an eye towards saying, is this the best we can do and that we owe it to the world to do this well. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting, too, um, that we have um, uh, Iowa Republicans uh, defending, <laughs> backing uh, Iowa Democrats here. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, this little quote, uh, the Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst giving her reaction on this news uh, affecting Iowa uh, on Fox News Sunday. So I am sorely disappointed that the Democrats chose not to have Iowa as their first in the nation caucus. Uh, We have uh, seen a number of pushes in the past to change this. I'm glad that Republicans are staying the course. And, you know, how I feel about this, I feel that Democrats have really given middle America the middle finger. Okay, Karen, so this is a really an interesting. Over the years, they have certainly uh, teamed up on this, um, uh, while um, on, on all the other issues, certainly not teaming up. So it's interesting here, isn't it? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And I think the, the two part major parties in Iowa have worked pretty well because they see it in their mutual interest to have both you know, both caucuses on the same day and that the the outcome for Iowa is a positive, right, in terms of the national media attention and in terms of the attention that it gets from candidates. Um, and, you know, in the four years that I've lived in Iowa, I've been very impressed by the sophistication of Iowa caucus participants. They really are very well educated on the issues and on the candidates and take their role very seriously. And so hats off to Iowans on that respect. Um, But I also think that both Ernst and Grassley have made important points about the proposed Democratic candidate really overlooking a vast swath of middle America. And Iowa is representative of a certain kind of state, you know, rural, agricultural, um, you know, increasingly diverse, you know, that that is simply not represented elsewhere, um, not even Michigan. And, you know, that the points are made that none of the early states are um, in the central or mountain time zones. And so that does make the National Democratic Party vulnerable to charges that it is simply disregarding uh, millions of, of potential voters and writing off the center of the country.
Mm-hmm. Wayne, your thoughts on this plan? Uh, I, I feel I, I feel great sadness. I, Barack Obama would not have been elected if South Carolina had been the first primary. He was elected because he won the Iowa caucuses, which proved to America that a black man could be elected president. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a point that Art, Art uh, yeah, there's a point that I, Art, uh, yeah, yeah, that Art Cullen made in his column uh, in the Storm Lake Times pilot. Here, um, he says, "How is it that Lily White Iowa can put Jesse Jackson in the front of the pack?" Uh, that's a while back, but see, Obama put a wrench in the gears of the Clinton machine. He writes, "That's the real issue," uh, writes Art Cullen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the northwest part of the state. Iowa allowed black candidates to challenge the white corporate Democratic power brokers. It allowed Bernie Sanders to rise to the top with a call for Medicare for all, a huge threat to the Wall Street funders of Democratic leadership. Karen, did you want to comment on that or something else? Yeah, I I mean, I thought that these are actually some pretty interesting points, right? And I was in South Carolina when... um, when Obama won the uh, won the Iowa caucus, and the sea change was clear and it was palpable with black voters who really wanted to support Obama, but were afraid that you know that that would not attract any white voters. And the fact that Iowa was you know did so you know did did so um, changed the tide, and uh, you know Obama absolutely just swept the Iowa or the the South Carolina primary as a result of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Let's go to a quick call before we uh, come to the end of this hour. Paul is with us from Algona. I'll ask, have to ask you to make it brief. Paul, gl- glad to have you on board. What's on your mind? Hi, I just, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on what, uh, I guess the question for the DNC, really, what am I supposed to tell swing voters who I normally talk to here in Iowa you know, they're, you know, addressing their confirmation bias, you know, that's obviously to come now, you know, there, you see, there, you see, I told you, Democrat, you know, Democrats don't give a hoot about Iowa. Uh, what am I supposed to say? Hmm. I don't know. Karen, you have a, an answer for Paul in Algona? Uh, um, I, I would say good point. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's very clear that the, that the DNC has, is written off Iowa, and and as I've been watching this debate and then talking with with people, the they have reduced Iowa to a stereotype that's not entirely fair. Yeah. Um, you know that it's all white and they're all farmers and they're all you know um, you know Republicans and be, the, making a big deal out of the unrepresentativeness of Iowa, which in fact. Um, recognizing the complexity of Iowa is, is completely overlooked. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, our, our Democratic Party chair is an African-American, that the Democratic candidate for governor was an African-American woman. Um, you know, all of these nuances are, and the increasing, you know, percentage of the population that is Latinx. Um, and, and these nuances are lost. And uh, that's really unfortunate. Let's spend the last few minutes, uh, Wayne, with you commenting on Ukraine first, if we can fit it in. Two days after what appeared to be Ukrainian drone strikes 
on military bases. These are deep within Russian territory. A U.S. State Department spokesman said the U.S. is not encouraging Ukraine to attack Russian targets beyond its borders. That's uh, Ned Price, the State Department spokesman. He's saying, we are not enabling Ukraine to strike beyond its borders. We're not encouraging Ukraine to strike uh, there. Uh, now we we see, Wayne, the strikes inside Russian territory, deep within their territory, raising fears the war might escalate. Your thoughts uh, about these attacks being attributed to Kiev. I don't think officially they've said that they are responsible. And the U.S. is walking a line here, isn't it? Well, this is scary because one of those targets happens to be one of the Russian strategic uh, bases where they have uh, bombers capable of even bombing the United States. And so it, sh- it shows a vulnerability in, uh, that Russia has that uh, – I think we've been worried that uh, the war would spread to Russia, and then how would Russia retaliate after it spreads to Russia? But um, it's pretty clear that the U.S., that Ukraine has done this alone, that that the U.S. has not given them assistance, so far as I can tell, uh, in order to bring these strikes about. Um, And one wonders what Putin can do to escalate. He's already destroying the infrastructure of the country. He's bombing houses. He's bombing electric companies. He's bombing water plants. What else can he do besides go to nuclear weapons? I don't think he'll do that because I don't think that either China nor India would would allow that. And I think that would ruin whatever kind of international reputation he has. And I think that would then give people a chance to then observe the sanctions that the U.S. has put on Russia and would make it much harder for him to fight the war. Wayne, I wonder if you think the risk of the risk of escalation by Vladimir Putin, you know, what we talked about over months um, earlier this year, the use of perhaps tactical nuclear weapons, if that's receded in fact or simply receded from our headlines? I think it's receded in fact. Um, uh, because I think it's becoming clearer over time that he has very little to gain and a lot to lose if he escalates. And, and what, he would, what he would lose would be support internationally. And he's still doing business with an awful lot of countries. And were he to lose that business, as I think he might if he were to use nuclear weapons, then that would strangle the Russian economy. As you mentioned, Wayne, Russia weaponizing winter against Ukraine and uh, the uh, EU, the G7, Australia, I think, included uh, with this oil price cap for Russian oil. Is that going to work, Wayne? Well, we don't know. Uh, the price is pretty close to $60 a barrel right now, which is, is what the cap price is. But it's all based on insurance companies uh, insuring ships that are carrying Russian oil. And, and the insurance companies would suffer s- sanctions themselves were they to sell the oil at a price larger, higher than $60. So uh, we'll have to see what, how, how well it works. But um, oil sanctions as we know back from Saddam Hussein, are fairly easy to get around. So Russia probably will be able to get around it, at least to some extent. Uh, less, in less than a minute, Wayne, talk about the sharp reversal in China announcing a series of measures rolling back some of its uh, anti-COVID restrictions. Uh, what does this reversal tell you about uh, China? This followed those street protests in several cities over their strict zero-COVID policy. 
Well, the street protests, I think you've hit the point right on the head, Beth. The street protests were the most significant street protests since Tiananmen Square in 1989. And uh, I think that, that rattled uh, the communist government. And I think that was responsible uh, for the relaxation of tensions, a relaxation of, of controls, which we see now being implemented in China. Okay. Uh, that's very significant uh, demonstrations. Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University. Wayne and Karen, thank you very much for your insights this hour. We appreciate it. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Tomorrow on this program, legal scholars Emily Hughes and Todd Pettis uh, will walk through significant U.S. Supreme Court and Iowa Supreme Court cases. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks. <laughs>